you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition. And it lies between the pit of one's fears and the summit of one's knowledge. You are now traveling through a dimension of imagination. You just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is one man's examination of the Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer. Each podcast, I share my first impressions, analysis, and overall thoughts on Rod Serling's iconic series one episode at a time. However, in this bonus episode review series, I am reviewing Season 2 of Jordan Peele and Simon Kinberg's Twilight Zone reboot on CBS All Access, hosted by Jordan Peele. You can find more of Anthology as well as full episode archives at anthologypod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can use the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, tweet me at ovanthologypod, or send me an email at matt at obsessiveviewer.com. Additionally, if you want to support the podcast, uh, you can do that by leaving a rating and review on iTunes or anywhere else you find your podcasts. And uh, if you want to support me monetarily, um, I do have a Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer where i do specific patreon exclusive recordings for people who support on patreon so i've got like 70 some odd episodes on there for you to go if you just pledge a minimum of one dollar per month and the uh patreon exclusive recording that i did for this episode covered an episode of weird city uh the twilight zone-esque comedy sci-fi anthology show on youtube premium uh that episode that i reviewed uh, 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 featured <laughs> Gillian Jacobs, who is in this episode of uh, The Twilight Zone that I'll be reviewing here in a moment. And I also talked about a web series from the writers of this episode of The Twilight Zone. So check that out, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. All you have to do is uh, uh, pledge $1 per month and you get access to an RSS feed that's specifically for Patreon supporters with a bunch of uh, back recordings of stuff so uh yeah with that out of the way i'm very excited to start this um episode and this episode review series um today i'm going to be discussing meet in the middle which is what i hope is the first episode of the twilight zone second season uh that is premiering on june 25th 2020 on cbs all access so what i mean by i hope it is the first episode um is that for the first time this this year um i didn't do this last year but this year I did get um, included on the CBS All Access press list, so I got screeners, uh, pre- like review screeners of three of the episodes of The Twilight Zone. So I am recording this before the episodes premiere on June 25th, and I'm very excited about that because that means I get to um, I, I get to post um, <laughs> the reviews right when the show premieres. So I'm super excited to be able to pro- provide those uh, reviews to you guys uh, in a timely fashion. Thanks to CBS All Access for putting me on the on the press list. Um, but <laughs> like I said, I have three screeners for three episodes of The Twilight Zone. Um, I have this weird anxiety that they're not going to be the first three episodes that launch because I th- I heard on other podcasts that uh, last year they did that same thing. They they gave out like three screeners, um, and they weren't in the order and everything which all of this is a moot point because on june 25th all 10 episodes are going to launch on um on cbs all access all at once so it's a moot point but um just know that if you're listening to this and 
like this is like the third or fourth episode in this review series it's because i went back and i changed the title and (laughs) the order of the episodes um after it was released so but if it's the first episode then this is all a moot point and i just wasted all of your time (laughs) so uh okay so yeah let me just dive right in i'm like i said i'm so excited about this review series um to kind of recap last year i did I reviewed every episode of the the first season of The Twilight Zone that was uh, released on CBS All Access last year, and I was very proud of those reviews. I feel like I really kind of dug into them, and I just I really enjoyed reviewing them and dissecting them to the um, at the at the to the extent that I did last year. So I'm just really just so excited to to really dive into this season um, of the show. And, uh, yeah, to kind of recap season one, I, I mean, I liked it. I, it was a little bit of a mixed bag. I did have some issues here and there. I thought that it was, um, while my politics do line up with the politics of the show, um, I felt like they were, they were hitting the, um, the kind the kind of rip from the headlines, uh, social commentary topics a little too hard. Like, like I said, I do appreciate and I do, I, my politics do fall in line with the shows that was the shows as they were told in season one. But my kind of overall issue was that it felt like the episodes were, okay, this is the, this is the gun episode. This is the police episode. This is the, um, uh, ill-equipped president episode and like while i do agree with everything that's communicated it felt like those topics were the main focus of the episodes instead of the characters so that was my main critique i did enjoy a lot of the episodes i actually really enjoyed the season i still think that six degrees of freedom and replay especially are just phenomenal episodes and especially replay now um with everything going on, uh, the, the, uh, the protests and everything for Black Lives Matter, um, replay is even more just relevant to our world and, uh, today. So I highly recommend going back and checking that out again and just watching it. Um, cause I do, I feel like that episode just really knocked it out of the park. I, I really enjoyed it. But anyway, um, and then by the time the season finale aired of season one, I was just blown away by the kind of meta-ness of it and everything. So I reviewed those all last year. You can check that out. Um, and I, oh, I also felt like the Easter eggs were, were hitting, uh, hitting us over the head a little bit. So, so that's my recap of season one. You can check it out. I also did a, um, a season recap episode with my friend tiny from my other podcast obsessive viewer and uh we talked for a long time about it so yeah uh check that out um links you know it's all on anthologypod.com so without further ado let me go into meet in the middle so um for those unfamiliar with the way i do things here um I'm going to spoil the entire episode. I'm not going to have a separate non-spoiler review and then a separate spoiler review. I am going into these reviews with the assumption that you, the listener, have 
have watched has watched the episode so i'm gonna spoil the entire episode so fair warning if you haven't seen it go check it out on cbs all access and come back and listen to my review so here it is plot summary for meet in the middle courtesy of cbs all access actually um their uh, little press release thing um lonely bachelor phil finds meaningful human connection when he discovers a telepathic link to a stranger named annie their connection quickly sparks a romance but not everything is as it seems in this seemingly idyllic fantasy so starring as phil hayes in this episode is jimmy simpson who is one of those actors that i've i've really uh really loved his work uh over the years he was in westworld which i saw the first season i i liked his performance on westworld and everything i just wasn't too hot on the actual show itself but he was also in uh the black mirror episode uss callister which i reviewed in bonus episode 20 of the podcast which you can find at anthologypod.com slash bonus zero two zero um I thought he did an, an incredible job in that episode. He really tapped into this emotional core of of a character that's kind of uh, <laughs> just he's trapped and he's uh, I don't know. I really was delighted by his performance in that. So I'm glad that he's making the rounds in the sci-fi realm um, in in the industry and everything. Of course, he is also in It's Always Sunny as one of the McPoyles. Um, that's where I first saw him and everything. He's, he's a really good, uh, really good actor. And I'm really delighted to see him in the twilight zone. Uh, co-starring is Gillian Jacobs as Annie Mitchell. And I adore Gillian Jacobs. First of all, I am just a diehard fan of the show community. Um, it is a phenomenal, like restructuring of the sitcom, format i i wouldn't even say that it's just it's it's uh it's a tv show it's a comedy tv show that defies the traditional sitcom structure and embraces a love of media and uh, pop culture in a way that i don't think any other show really has like it is just it is a remarkable piece of television um and community it has been uh it, it has a storied history in terms of behind the scenes and everything but it had six seasons and still holding out for that movie um it had six seasons and it, they are all currently available on netflix um just the last month or so they uh were added to netflix and that's kind of re revitalized it in the kind of social media sphere so it's getting a lot of love online and everything now that people are kind of discovering it or rediscovering it on netflix and yeah so that's my plug for community go check it out i love that show so much and gillian jacobs is phenomenal even though (laughs) even though her character britta is the worst um she's she's great she has she has some really good uh really good range in that show um she was also in the three season netflix series uh love with Paul Rust. I saw the first season. I, I need to go back and watch watch it again because um, I really liked their chemistry, Paul Rust and uh, Gillian Jacobs. And yeah, that's that's on Netflix. And also uh, kind of to tie it into Anthology and The Twilight Zone, uh, she did appear in an episode of the YouTube premium uh, original series Weird City. It's a comedy, sci-fi, Twilight Zone-y um, semi-anthology show from Jordan Peele and uh, Charles Sanders. Um, 
from uh yeah and she was in one episode called Jonathan and Malia and Barsley and Fefany um that's season one episode five I actually did review it or give my thoughts on it on Patreon so if you want to donate a dollar and get that Patreon feed go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer um weird city is fun it's kind of weird um <laughs> to, to be fair I mean it's weird but um it's weird city but it's like I've struggled with whether or not I should cover it as a bonus episode review series. Cause there's not much content that I think I would really talk about, but I don't know. It's kind of goofy fun. It's kind of heightened comedy, uh, kind of it, it's, it's silly. I mean, check it out if you're interested. So yeah. And then rounding out the cast, I, I was, I'm so delighted that I found out this, uh, like I thought to check out this, uh, actress's resume, but Kristen Lehman, she plays Phil's therapist in this episode. And I knew that I recognized her from somewhere, but I could not place it. And, uh, it turns out <laughs> that I recognized her from the 2007 very brief one not even one season wonder but like seven episode wonder uh drive on fox um drive was a show that was co-created or produced by i want to say joss whedon and uh (laughs) it was like oh god it's uh, it's it's crazy but anyway uh drive was about a cross country clandestine road race um with Nathan Fillion and um uh a bunch of people like Emma Stone's in it like this is before this is before like right before um super bad um but Emma Stone's in it the thing that i love about drive it's indicative of kind of just the really dumb network decision uh, on Fox's part. So it was, in, uh, I'm going to go on a tangent and I apologize. So Fox at the time, this was 2007 Fox was riding high with having 24 as, as a huge, huge show. It was a huge hit. And at this point it was like in season five or six, I think, um, or maybe even close to seven. But at that time, 24, they had been, when they did their premieres, they would do four episodes over two nights. So they would do two back-to-back episodes commercial free on Sunday and then do the next two episodes on Monday. And part of that is because it was a serialized show and like each, each episode took place in one hour of a day. And, uh, and that would kind of get the viewers through like the, the kind of uh, the first chunk of the season. So what they did with drive, (laughs) since it was a serialized show about a clandestine uh, cross country race and everything is they did the same thing for a show that was just premiering and had, had no audience. So they did like a two night premiere with four episodes. So like, I, I don't know. I just always thought it was really silly because it was like, okay, we have the show that has no audience and we're going to expect audiences to latch onto it and commit to four hours of a TV show they know nothing about over two nights um, and then go to a regular like uh, schedule the next week. So needless to say, after like seven episodes or I think after like six episodes, it was canceled just abruptly. But anyway, she was in it. (laughs) She played kind of a mercurial almost femme fatale kind of thing. She partners up with uh, Nathan Fillion's character and you don't really know like what her deal is or what her, um, her place is in this, in this uh, like very mysterious, uh, cross country race. But anyway, so she was in drive. Um, that's my tangent on drive. Um, and she was also in one episode of the X files and here's where it gets interesting. She was in 
a 2002 Twilight Zone episode. I was so delighted to see that on her IMDb. She was in Dead Man's Eyes, which itself is an episode that I am very curious about because at this point in Anthology, I have just finished reviewing Season 2 of the original Twilight Zone. And in Season 3, there's an episode, I believe it's Dead Man's Shoes, and that episode I'm very kind of curious to get to because Dead Man's Shoes was from the original series and then it was remade in 1985's Twilight Zone remake and then it was remade again in 2002 which has Kristen Lehman in that episode and <clears throat> excuse me in that episode so I'm very curious to get to that episode because I that is the only episode of the Twilight Zone that has been remade in each uh, iteration of the show, save for this new one with uh, Jordan Peele. So I'm very excited to um, see that. She was in an episode Dead Man's Eyes from 2002. And then uh, also uh, worth mentioning in the kind of sci-fi anthology realm, she appeared in four episodes of the 90s Outer Limits uh, series. So she is no stranger to science fiction um, at all. Um, like with X-Files, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, even Drive. Um, even though Drive wasn't really sci-fi, it was still, you know... Um, it was something. Anyway, uh, writers for this episode were Emily C. Chang and Sarah Amini. Uh, they are also writing the episode Ovation, which is going to be later this season. And they both wrote and, and wrote, created, and star in Misery Loves Company, which is a web series. Uh, the plot summary is two friends navigate being women of color in a post-election world while trying and failing at a hashtag blessed life in LA. Um, if Again, if you subscribe to me on Patreon at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, at the minimum rate of $1 per month, you'll hear the Patreon feed where I reviewed the first three episodes, or I talked briefly about the first three episodes of that. So it's a web series, has seven episodes. It's fun. It's, it's pretty funny. Um, yeah, I've seen three of the seven episodes and I enjoyed it. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to where you can find it because it's all available on YouTube. Um, but it's fun. I definitely recommend checking it out. Each episode's only like four or five minutes. They're, they're short episodes and, uh, they, Emily Chang and Sarah Amini have really good comedic timing and, uh, good, uh, comedic sensibilities. So, yeah, check that out. So, uh, yeah, uh, to kind of talk about them separately, Emily Chang is also an actress who made an appearance in the aforementioned community um, in season five in the episode Bondage and Beta Male Sexuality. And she also wrote and starred in a feature film called Grass. Uh, the plot summary of that is best friends for uh, best Best friends Jinky and Cam are tasked with delivering a large bag of marijuana for Cam's drug dealer fiance. Um, I don't know much about it, but I know that it is, or it looked like kind of a an indie comedy um, that I would like to check out. I, I hope that I can find it. I didn't, I didn't look up to see if it's available anywhere, but um, I'm curious about it. Maybe I'll talk about that in the patreon feed when i get to ovation in the season of the twilight zone and sarah amini is also an actress she was in uh, future man on hulu um, which is a show i haven't seen but i've heard good things about it, and it seems right up my alley i love time travel and science fiction obviously <laughs> so uh yeah i might check that out sometime and then uh, rounding out the talent rundown is director the director for this episode is matthias or uh, Math- uh matthias herndl uh he he is the cinematographer on six episodes of the this iteration of the Twilight Zone. I talked about him last season. Um, 
And he also directed last season's Point of Origin episode, which is really interesting because this episode of The Twilight Zone has noticeably less uh, Easter eggs than really any of the episodes last season. But the the Easter eggs that I did find in this episode are recycled or reused specifically from the episode Point of Origin, which Matthias Herndl also directed last season. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know if there's something behind the scenes regarding that, but I just thought that that was kind of interesting. Okay, so let's go right into my review of Meat in the Middle. Um, my initial thoughts after my first viewing of this episode, I've watched it at this point like four times, um, is that <laughs> if this ends up being the first episode, like the first episode of the season, what a way to start the season. Like, I am so hopeful for this season of the show. Now, at this point, like I said, I have three screeners. But I've only watched this episode because I've wanted to focus on each episode at a time. So as tempting as it was to watch those other two and then come back to this one, um, just for the sake of podcast purposes, I guess, um, I decided to just watch me in the middle over and over again. Um, and so I'm going to watch the next one after, you know, uh, this is recorded. So, um, I just, I feel so hopeful for this season because if this is the start of the season, if this is the first episode of the season, I feel like the show has grown and that also the writers paid attention to some of the criticisms from last season. So like, I I was very vocal last season about how kind of annoying it was that the opening narrations, while Jordan Peele's delivery of the narration was really strong and really satisfying to me, um the actual writing of the opening narrations were le- left a little bit to be desired because they all kind of seemed to follow a formula like meet, uh, meet Samir Wasan. He's a, an artist, of great principle. And there's like, Oh, meet, uh, Justin Adams, <clears throat> Justin Adam Scott and meet, uh, Tessa Formiga and everything. Like it just felt like, okay, they're just introducing the characters and then saying something and then, and then saying the twilight zone at the end. Like it seemed repetitive, but this, like this didn't feel like a formula. <laughs> like the opening narration has clearly been punched up and very is, it's very, I was very satisfied with this. I'll get into that in the review. Um, also the fact that this episode told a character focused story and not a not a headline focused story now like i said i have no problem with them dealing with um current issues and everything like i said replay i've i've rewatched replay today actually and man that episode is is incredible um just incredible um but i really love that they did this character focused story here and it's just very much about Phil and Annie. And I just, I, I love it for that. Also, the fact that they eased up on the Easter eggs, um, this season is just really satisfying because it got kind of distracting, uh, last season. So, um, those are my initial thoughts for my first viewing. And I'm going to go ahead and review Meet in the Middle. So I'm going to go kind of scene by scene. So here's my review of Meet in the Middle. Like I said, spoilers on. So be warned. So we open up the episode with a shot of Phil played by Jimmy Simpson. He's on a first date in a crowded restaurant and his date is doing her best, but he's just not engaging with her. And it's worth mentioning that the actress playing uh, the date is Sarah Amini, co-writer of the episode. Um, so the thing that... <laughs> 
kind of struck me about his character right from the outset is that he comments on her hair in a negative way. Like it, like it's, it's like it bothers him that her hair is curly and it's not even that curly. It's just like, it's a little curly and he, he's not doing it in like a douchebag, like neg way he's doing it like the way that he does that is it conveys more that he's just ridiculously particular and his standards are i don't wouldn't even say standards just like his his attitude is just really obnoxious um so it goes even further because he, he even pulls out her uh, pulls out his phone and loads up her internet dating profile <laughs> which is like that just seems like the date from hell like that's horrible um so they're having a conversation or she's trying to deflect or she's trying to talk about what they should get for food when Annie breaks into his mind. Um, and the music kind of swells in this moment. It kind of becomes not overbearing, but it's just very loud. And the soundtrack, uh, of her voice is amplified a bit. Like you, you can hear, you know, he's hearing her in his mind and we can hear it just not blowing out the speakers, but it's very much like present in, in the soundtrack. And it's very, um, alarming. And Jimmy Simpson does such a fantastic job of playing the super crazed and confused guy. Like he has no idea what's going on. And he's, it looks like he's having a panic attack and he's trying to conceal it. He's trying to not look like he's a raving lunatic. Um, and he's trying to figure out what's going on and everything. It's just, it's a really satisfying piece of, kind of a uh, silent uh, acting from Jimmy Simpson and like the comedic beat of him saying, I have no fucking clue when she says something to him in his mind. Um, but he says it out loud and then, uh, and then, and then his, his, his date <laughs> is like, what are you, what are you talking about? Um, by the way, his date has the patience of a saint. <laughs> like, uh, it seemed like, cause he's clearly not paying attention to her or having any, interest in what's going on he's in his own little world and she's still talking about like oh i'm i'm gonna get the chicken and there's four pieces so we can split it and we each have two um and she just doesn't just get up and walk away (laughs) um so after that phil goes to the bathroom he he finally like breaks like breaks the concentration of the telepathy and quickly says like hey i need to i'll be right back i'm i'm i need to excuse me uh and he goes into the bathroom and the bathroom set is kind of kind of big um uh it kind of has this fancy almost futuristic kind of look like the the mirrors are weirdly shaped or they're circular but it's like they're small circle mirrors against this massive wall um so i don't know it was it was kind of in kind of rounded wall i guess um but so i thought that was interesting so when he gets into the bathroom, he starts thinking at Annie. And I like the way that the soundtrack of their thoughts, like the telepathy um, sounds, feels so much louder. Like I said, it happened when Annie broke into his thoughts, but it just feels like it's a very, um, it's a very loud and intrusive sound um, in the soundtrack. And I think that that works really well because it is conveying that their conversation, their inner monologue or their inner dialogue, um, is distracting. Like it is, it is a distraction from the real world, the, in the world around them. So, um, I like that. And then there's another kind of cute comedy beat where, um, 
she i think she tells him to get out of her head and then he yells no you get out just as a guy opens the door to the bathroom and then he just kind of stands there and he nopes right out of there and walks away from the door i thought that was that was cute that was a fun that was a fun uh <laughs> a fun little bit um so then kind of in the franticness uh or in the frenzy of this of this inner conversation that they're having this first conversation they agree to stop talking to each other and to leave each other alone as best they can um and I kind of like the energy of that. It starts out like we don't like we and they have no idea what's going on, and it like it just escalates to the point where they just agree like okay, we'll stop. This needs to stop. This is so unnatural and so weird. We can't like just leave me alone. And they both agree to leave each other alone. It brings us right into the confusion and weirdness of the episode. And I love that there's minimal explanation. And that's something that I really appreciate and everything like it, like I'm sure people will probably nitpick it or like kind of think like, Oh, well, why didn't they explain why? But you don't need to explain why it's a sci-fi anthology show. It's the twilight zone. We have the magical device. We have the, the, uh, twilight zone element of the episode. That's all we need. So I think that having it be, uh, unexplained throughout the episode is very satisfying. And it leads me to a very, uh, curious theory I have about it, um, that I'll talk about later that, uh, is allowed, um, through the fact that there is so much ambiguity to the element of the, the twilight zone element of the, in this episode. So I appreciate it that it allows me to formulate theories and stuff. So we get the opening narration. A voice in your head can mean a few different things. A conscience, divine inspiration, or madness. But what if, instead, it were a case of crossed wires? One made through the tangled, enigmatic switchboards of the Twilight Zone. It's super quick. It's just perfect. I, I really love this opening narration and i was so happy because i was like i was i was clocking it i was wondering if it was going to be like oh meet phil hayes a man who just had a first date and then he heard a woman in his head and now he's talking to the woman in his head and then he's going to learn that the woman in his head isn't what she seems because she's in his head um like it it's so elegant like a voice in your head can mean a few different things a conscience divine inspiration or madness but what if instead it were a case of crossed wires one made through the tangled enigmatic switchboards of the twilight zone super quick super brief super condensed and conveys so much it does everything this is a great piece of writing i think i really really love it and so the actual narration takes place with Jordan Peele as like he's in the reflection of the mirror. And I think that that's pretty cool. Um, and like I said, I like the design of the bathroom. So that is kind of an added element. It's interesting because it kind of reminds me a little bit. Uh, I mean, it's just a circle, but it reminds me a little bit of the uh, door, uh, the kind of uh, circle window in the door in a traveler last season um where the title of the episode popped up in in inside the door so uh yeah then we get the opening credits and i was kind of curious if they were going to change up the opening credits at all but i guess not um 
yeah, so it's the it's the same. <laughs> and we come back and we see the title of the episode and we see that Phil is at work at what looks like a supermarket. It's kind of ambiguous. It doesn't really they don't really uh, talk about what he does or anything. But I presume that he's the manager of it because um, later in the se- later in the episode he's in the office. Um, and then we get our first Easter egg, which is interesting. So like he puts the. I think it's a binder, like an empty binder or clipboard or something. He puts it down and we just get a big shot of frosted can of munch cereal, which is interesting because like I said, when I was doing the talent rundown, um, that Easter egg is recycled from season one. Like we had the can of munch cereal, the frosted can of munch cereal in season one in point of origin, which was also directed by Matthias Herndl. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I don't know. And then the East, there's an Easter egg later that I'll point out that is also recycled from that same episode. So I don't know, kind of, kind of weird. Um, I don't know what the deal is with that. So, he checks to see if Annie is still in his head and she says yes. And then we get an abrupt cut to a therapy session with him and his therapist played by Kristen Lehman. And I wonder if there's like a missing scene, like it did, it didn't disrupt the episode at all for me, but it kind of had this, the abruptness of it felt like maybe there's a missing scene there that would have been like a more, a lengthier conversation that led to the therapy session uh, or the content in this therapy session. But like I said, it doesn't, doesn't detract or anything, but I really like this therapy session because like I said, in my initial thoughts and everything, this is a character focused episode And this therapy session scene really develops Phil in a very satisfying and in my notes, I have in parentheses and praise God subtle way. <laughs> so the therapist asks about the date and he says kind of offhandedly, he says like I dropped $200 for nothing uh, to which the therapist says, that it isn't a transaction and he's so casual about it claiming that he just wants a connection he just wants to meet someone awesome and everything but this whole attitude that he has hints at this sense of entitlement that he has and maybe a bit of like male privilege and uh what i what i've dubbed as nice guy itis um which i'll talk more about later in the episode because i do think that this episode gets into a uh, realm of being uh an interesting riff on the kind of notion or idea of like white knight saviorism, like not white knight savior, but like, like white knightism, um, online, like online white knights for men, like protecting women and everything. Um, so anyway, that so the, the whole nice guy itis is kind of compounded later in the episode. But for now, we get the sense that Phil isn't interesting in developing relationships so much as he's interested in some cure-all magical connection, which is what Annie is rapidly representing to him and everything. And I really appreciated the, the line that the therapist says where uh, she says that uh, life isn't a romantic comedy. And, uh, I have in my notes, I feel that (laughs) like it's, that's something I like in my personal life, I've struggled with that for, for years. Um, because I was, I grew up on romantic comedies and everything. Um, and that skewed my perspective of relationships and everything, but, uh, that's not what this podcast is about. (laughs) So, the therapist 
kind of posits to him that the voice in his head was actually a manifestation of his mind. And she then goes on like a little bit later to float the idea that he may have disassociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder. Um, but she also mentions that every date he has that he brings up in the therapy sessions, he blames them, the women, for his unhappiness. And I thought that that was a very telling piece of characterization for, for Phil as a character because he is kind of like he seems like a pleasant enough guy or like he seems kind of friendly and approachable i guess but he kind of has this undercurrent of um angsty anxiety and uh just general unhappiness that is i mean the the whole the old adage of like you know love yourself before you can love someone else like that is he's a prime example of that he doesn't know how he's not comfortable in his own skin um and therefore he and he doesn't know that it's his problem <laughs> like he thinks that he's fine like he thinks that he's okay um but in this moment i do want to kind of um break from the rundown of the episode or, or or analyzing it because in this moment when i first watched it i really started to think and granted this is because i was so used to the first season being very much uh topic uh, focused. But in this moment where she says that he blames the women that he sees for his unhappiness, I really thought that this episode had the, was going to turn into an episode about like the trans community and that it would be about Phil discovering or embracing the idea that maybe he identifies as a woman and he needs to like come out as that. Um, I support that idea in the trans community and everything. Like I support that, but I'm really glad we got the episode that we did because it is a better constructed episode uh, and I, it would be kind of difficult for, for, the Twilight Zone to do that with a Twilight Zone element, if that makes sense. So, like, I'm all for having an episode or, or a, a piece of media be about a, a human being discovering, like, what gender they are. But I don't know if it's possible to do something like that with a Twilight Zone element because that kind of muddies the waters. That gets a little bit, like, I don't know. It kind of it kind of seems like it, it would... Uh, toe a, a very specific line of maybe being offensive to um, transgendered people. So at this point, going back to the actual therapy session, the there's a specific focus that the camera and Phil's eyes make on the therapist's glasses that are in his hand that are in her hands. And I feel like this this specific shot, like it's just a few seconds. I feel like that leaves the episode up to a specific type of interpretation, and I find that very very interesting. And I like I have in my notes. Thank God for more ambiguity. <laughs> so here's my theory. I'm jumping ahead. Um, I'll talk more about the theory as, after I finish kind of running down the entire episode, but. My theory in this moment is that he's attracted to the glasses. He finds a certain attraction to just the glasses themselves. And I feel like maybe there's potential there. Uh, again, this is just a theory. I, like, And that's the beautiful thing about this episode of The Twilight Zone and its ambiguity is that I can have this theory, not necessarily think that it's true, but also there's nothing to discount it, in my opinion. So... My theory is that Annie isn't really in his head. It's kind of like Memento, uh, where he has this idea of who he's pursuing and that any Annie could be his Annie. She is a figment of his imagination. She is the perfect woman. She 
she is this perfect entity in his mind. So when he seeks her out online, he finds the most attractive one uh, from his viewpoint, and that's the one with the glasses. And later on, in in what is a scene that I really enjoyed, him stepping on the glasses is his mind tricking him into furthering that delusion. So like, it's like, okay, this is the identifying thing about my Annie and I just destroyed them. I just broke them. Um, and so I'm on the right track and everything. It's real. So, and in that he's just really crazy and everything. Um, that would also kind of explain why Annie's profile lists her as being in diamond falls when she's actually in a house in, uh, wherever that place is by um, the, the train stop. Um, so I don't know. I'll, I'll expand more probably later in the episode or after I run down the episode, but that's just kind of a theory that I had, um, going forward. It, I don't think subscribing to that theory wrecks the episode or even recontextualizes the episode. I just think that it's a fun thought experiment. So let me know what you think about that theory and I'll talk more about it later in this episode. Um, so, as the therapy session is going on, Annie interrupts uh, interrupts Phil's thoughts and talks about how she's bored. And that pulls his attention away from the therapist. She's rambling on and talking to him about disassociative identity disorder while he's having a conversation with the woman in his head. Um, and what I find interesting on repeat viewings of this is that Annie is clearly telling him everything that he wants to hear. And obviously with the context of knowing the ending, it's a tactic on her part. And, and it's all, it's all something that she's working toward a goal for. Um, however, what I love about it is that it plays so well into his character flaws that I've talked about before. Um, he's so particular and he's so kind of self-involved and he's so, much driven by his own ego. So Annie playing him by placating his every thought and opinion um, is uh, kind of conning him into trusting her because he sees everything as transactional, as the therapist said. His happiness is based on the attention he receives and not on an actual mutual connection. And the attention that he receives tricks him into feeling that it's a mutual connection. Granted, she also tells him outright that it is a mutual connection, but his happiness is based on the attention he receives. That's kind of the bottom line of it, in my opinion. And so as they kind of have their conversation, their bonding and everything, he just gets up and walks out of the session. And Annie kind of celebrates that as he's walking down the street. And, um, she's like kind of amazed by it. And again, it's kind of feeding into this, heightened sense of self that he feels about himself. And like she says at the end of the episode, she's just telling him what he wants to hear. And so we transition to the coffee house and in the coffee house, he's just blatantly checking out the barista who is co-writer Emily C. Chang. Um, and this is where he kind of starts to gauge what their power is. He's checking to see. So he checks with Annie to see if she can sense that he's turned on essentially. And in kind of a weird way, I don't know how this is going to sound, but I really like the vocal performance there because he is so like uncomfortable and it kind of has this breathy kind of like inappropriate tone to it in like Jimmy Simpson is kind of shifting in his chair as he's talking. So it's kind of like this weird, like I'm really turned on now in this public place. Can you sense that Annie? Um, and so he tells her and then she's like, no, I can't, but it's a playful thing. Like she, uh, kind of is flirtatious with him and everything. 
But an interesting part of this conversation is that she stops and asks if, because he asks her if, if he, if she can see him or see what he's seeing. And so at this point she asks, wait, can you see, can you see me? And when he says no, she's very much relieved. And so, okay, at this point in my first viewing, I really thought that this episode was going to go in, um, a direction of like, him finding out that she has some sort of disability or something. And that's why she said not to later on, she says not to look her up or anything. Um, or that she's even in a coma in like a black mirror esque twist. And I feel like that kind of would have been fitting given his ridiculously high standards, but it also really would have been difficult, nay impossible, uh, to pull off without being offensive in, in some way. Um, I, I, I don't think it would have really uh I don't think there's a really organic way to be like oh the the cruel fate twist is that she's disabled in some way like that's not appropriate that's shitty really so maybe it's my mind that's I maybe I'm a terrible person for thinking that it was going to go that route but I kind of re- just it made me think of um Walkabout, the episode of Lost, the first Locke episode of Lost. So anyway, um, that's not how it turns out, and I'm relieved by it because I really like the way that it turned out, which we'll get to in a bit. So Annie encourages him to ask the barista out, and he, like, it's a flirtatious kind of thing, and then he gets up to go talk to her, but she's immediate, like, she's helping a customer, and it's a kind of flirtatious kind of uh, helping the customer uh, lightly flirtatious and that kind of kills his, um, his, uh, excitement or <laughs> maybe excitement isn't the right word in that context. It kills his, uh, courage, I guess, to, to talk to her and ask her out. So after that, they're walking. He's, he, well, he's walking down the sidewalk and then they decide to have dinner together. They get pizza and, it's really kind of sweet that they have dinner together here. Um, it has all the makings of like this being a story about long distance relationships and everything, which we see in ton- in media all the time. Um, but it's just kind of sweet. And I like the way that it's slowly just unveiling how improved Phil's life is at this point. So like he, he's walking in and like the, he goes to the counter and the, the woman behind the counter is like, Oh, Hey Phil, you're usual to go. And then he's like, Nope, I'm going to actually dine in, dine in tonight. And it's like, it's, it's nice. He feels more, he seems more comfortable in his skin and everything. So they have their kind of cute little talk and, and conversation and everything. Um, they lightly talk about their, uh, connection, everything like the, the telepathy and everything. Um, but I do want to mention just briefly, I was going to make notes about this, but I, I don't know how I could have made notes about it because I don't know, but how, so like they talk about the, the telepathy and then Annie says we could use it to our advantage. We could rob a bank. And like, I can't, like, I can't fathom a situation where this particular like power would benefit them or, or be of benefit to them if they were to rob a bank. Like, I don't know how that would work exactly. Um, but yeah, so if you have any ideas, any pitches for how they would rob a bank, let me know. Um, so Annie mentions that she was jealous of the barista and I really like just the overall intimacy of the telepathic conversations. Like the voice acting just really conveys their vulnerability and, like the energy of their connection and like the emotional connection that's forming between them 
I just feel like the voice acting is phenomenal for that. Like it, it conveys those things so spectacularly. And I mean, like this is an episode where Gillian Jacobs doesn't appear in the episode until the very end. And we only get to see her like physically acting like in a couple of brief scenes, but she is just rocking this part so well. Like she is phenomenal. Like her voice acting is remarkable. And Jimmy Simpson, he, I mean, he has the benefit of, you know, having like a physical presence to kind of, um, help with the, with the voice acting, but the voice acting, like the actual, like I said, kind of breathy intensity and, and intimacy is remarkable. I, I just really, really liked the, uh, the intimacy of the telepathic conversations. So they've been talking like all day and they decided to tell each other their names and they're Phil Hayes and Annie Mitchell. And I like that Annie said, like, did we just enter a whole new level of intimacy? (laughs) And I was so charmed by Phil's response to that. He's smiling as he's looking out the window and he's, his, uh, his, words to Annie are that like a joking, like, Oh, we should get married, have a few kids and, you know, save up for college and everything. Um, I just love the kind of look of just happiness that is permeating Phil's face when he's like thinking these thoughts at Annie. It's just, it's really charming. Um, but then, (laughs) then Annie says, promise me you won't look me up. And like in my notes, I have red flag, bro. (laughs) Like that is such a red flag. Um, and she kind of explains that as saying like, as saying like, let's preserve this you've got male relationship that's forming with us. And I like the next line because first of all, I'm a huge fan of just romantic comedies and everything. And, um, I love that the next, the very next line is, uh, Phil saying like, okay, shop girl. Um, and it's just, it's, it conveys that they do have a connection and that they are compatible because he's just making a a reference to the movie. You've got mail. And it's just, I don't know, something about that just really charmed me and everything. So he's agreed not to look her up and everything, which obviously red flag. So the next day he's at work and he's in the office and he starts to look her up, (laughs) but he stops himself when he sees her profile link in the search results and he kind of puts his phone away. And so he distracts himself by calling Annie for some flirty conversation and a lot, not even really flirty conversation, just kind of basic, like, Oh, dogs are cats or coffee or tea. Um, but what I love about that is that it shows that it shows growth in his character. So he, because he sees Annie as unique. Like he's not looking her up and picking her apart her profile. Instead, he's talking to her. Like if they were on a, if they were on a date and it was a conventional date, he would not whip out his phone and analyze her profile picture compared to how she looks there. Um, that's growth for his character. And I just really like that characterization. And honestly, it's basically exactly what I want out of this show. Like that I was so floored by this because this is what I have wanted. And I wanted all throughout season one and I got some of that in season one, but it's on another level in this episode. And I just think that that bodes very well for this season of the show. I really hope that I don't eat my words when I watch the rest of the episodes, but for this moment in this one episode that I've seen of this season of the twilight zone, I'm all for it. And I really think that it's in the, it's putting the show in the right direction. And then immediately after that, we get, 
the sweetest montage. Like, I love this montage of them chatting while he's walking around the city. Like, the music is perfect. It's this energetic kind of piano melody that evokes that very specific ro- uh, romantic comedy feel and the tone. It's just, it's really beautiful. And you really, you really can't help but fall for their relationship and believe that Phil is falling in love with her. And it's just something that I just feel is so well done in this brief montage, all things considered. And the snippets of their conversations that we see is like, we don't need to hear full conversations because we can tell how sweet and endearing they are to each other just by what they're saying. Like just the content of what they're saying. Like they're talking about hiking and bears and their childhoods and these banal musings and hypotheticals about like shipping containers. And they're watching a billiards tournament or something on a tv in a bar and it's just it's so charming even though like it's weird like i thought the billiards thing was kind of weird like it's like what game are they like they're just playing pool on tv i I, that's it was very specific and weird but um not in a bad way it didn't detract or anything but um i was just so charmed by it and the music again is so good um and so after that montage we get our our next easter egg which he's at the ice cream truck and he's getting mint chocolate chip, uh, two scoops. And we see that it is, if you, if you pause it really quickly, it's Dingle's ice cream. Um, which is again, it's a reference to Mr. Dingle the strong. And, uh, it was also, again, it was recycled. It's a, it's a, it's an Easter egg that's recycled from season one. And, uh, and it's from the same episode that was that the can munch, uh, cereal was recycled from, um, which again is interesting. Like it, I mentioned, I think last season that it felt like, um, they had a limited amount of Easter eggs or like props and everything. And they kind of, I don't know. It seems like they didn't really, uh, increase the budget for, for, uh, Easter eggs, um, this season, at least so far. So I don't know. It doesn't detract or anything. It was just an interesting observation that the two Easter eggs we got, or two of the Easter eggs we got in this episode, uh, come from the same episode from last season that was directed by the same person. So he gets the ice cream. I thought it was really cute that he takes two spoons. It's just the nice little charming, like cute little thing that he does there. Um, and so then we get, Again, like, I really love the pacing of this, of this episode in their relationship, because then we get the next arc to start. So they're watching TV together. It's some classic science fiction show. Um, it is clearly kind of a reference to Battlestar Galactica. Um, he references, like, she references that it's a, it's one of the great, greatest season premieres that she's ever seen. And then he well actually is her and says it's actually part one of a miniseries. So technically it's not a season premiere. And she references that, like, oh, this character was really a thing the whole time. And that's kind of part and parcel with, with Battlestar Galactica. Um, and, uh, Oh my God. Why can't I think of the, why can't I think of the, uh, I've seen like four seasons of, I don't know, or like the two and a half seasons, I should say. Um, this is going to bug me. Cylons. Cylons. Okay. I'm going to have to cut out that silence and I'm not going to admit how long that silence was before I could remember Cylons. Um, so yeah, so yeah, in this scene in particular, the actual like voiceover of uh, like this, the voice over, not narration, but the actual telepathy speech, the soundtrack of that seems more intimate. Like it's, it's more breathy and, and intentional, I should say, or I, I would say. Um, 
and it, it's it's the way that the conversation seems almost louder in the scene um than it was previously like it's it's more intimate and very much more uh uh specific specific and pointed i guess in something about the way that the actual sound of the of the audio that the actual audio is a little bit higher it kind of reminds me something about it reminded me of the audio in eye of the beholder in season two of the original series i don't know i i don't know audio that well um which is a great thing to say on a podcast but um it just there was something about it like it hearing them talk to each other telepathically reminded me of um the woman talking through the mask in eye of the beholder so at this point phil wants to make his move he's he's very like uh, erotically touching the couch beside him and everything very delicately and everything and he kind of makes his he shoots his shot and says he wants to meet like he wants he wants to he wants to um escalate things and that scares her off she breaks the connection she says oh i'm going to go to bed goodbye and so at that moment that's when he looks her up it's a betrayal of the promise that he made and everything and it also uh leads him to discover that she's married. So what I kind of appreciate about this is that it's not spaced out. Like they don't milk this revelation for dramatic effect because he immediately calls her back um, mentally. And she she makes this really bad joke that I thought was kind of funny and charming uh, when she says like, well, we we never said we were exclusive. I thought that was kind of funny. Um, if maybe a little bit out of place, but, but it landed okay with me. Um, but what I love is when he's confronting her about the marriage and like the fact, the fact that she's married and that it's a big detail that she didn't unveil to him, um, unveil to him, no pun intended. Um, she, her counter to that is, I guess you looked me up after all. And it's kind of a nice, like, organic diversion tactic on her part. Um, like, she's just, like, she's trying to skirt the, uh, the, um, the fact that she's married and has been concealing that from him or not telling him about it, um, by kind of bringing that up. But he kind of brushes past that and everything. Um, but she's, she immediately kind of also starts playing up this connection that they have and, and his connection to her and how talking to him has been so great. And, and it's the first time that she's felt like she's been listened to and everything. Um, and of course we know later in the episode that she's playing him and everything, but she also hints that her husband is in some ways abusive. And I really kind of appreciate that they kept it very vague here. Cause all she has to say is that, you know, he's not a great man. And the way she says it is very pointed and very, um, it has a lot of weight behind it and we don't need specifics. And obviously at this point we like, it's left up in the air as to whether or not he is abusive or, or controlling or we don't know anything about him. And that is, I I love that. I, I love that because it makes Phil's actions in the, at the end of the episode so much more just gruesome and shocking. Um, yeah. So, but they, they kind of, they kind of ease the tension of the, of the marriage, uh, revelation and everything. Like, 
again, she's telling him what he wants to hear. He, she wants, she's telling him that he is special. He's specific. He, he has purpose and everything. Um, or that the connection is, is real. Um, and then later in bed, he wakes her up and they talk about their connection more, their purpose and life and everything. This whole kind of, uh, destiny and free will thing and everything. And this is again, where we get more characterization for Phil. Um, he doesn't think he has a purpose. He doesn't see himself as anything special. And Annie kind of relates to that or says that she, like, she's more confident that he has a purpose. And, uh, she says like, all of us are here for a reason, including you. And, she says uh, some more things. I'll get to that in a second because the next thing I want to talk about is the set of his apartment. I believe it's the same set they used, only obviously repurposed um, for Samir's apartment in season one, and also the set in Blurry Man, which is, I mean, it's not like a dig or criticism or anything. It's just an observation because obviously a TV show is going to have sets and they're going to recycle those sets. Um, I do want to mention that the light coming through the windows that kind of sim- simulating the cars outside is similar to the lighting that was used in the comedian that I loved so much. Like that moment where he goes to the apartment and, um, I think, I think it's after, after, um, his girlfriend is like no longer a lawyer and stuff. And he's kind of like at a breaking point. Um, the camera swirls around and the lights kind of come through the, the windows. It's the same effect here. But it's to a slightly lesser effect for me. Like, I really liked it, and I love I love that kind of technique. But And I still find it unique, but I think that this... Uh, I, I just think that it, it wasn't as um, focal to the scene and everything. It was just more like just lighting. But on the other hand, I do like that this iteration of The Twilight Zone is kind of in doing things like that is creating its own kind of distinct style. And I, I really appreciate it for that. So he tells her about his insecurities and everything. He says that he's not successful or he's not alpha male hot or special in any way. And she reassures him and says that she believes she has an escape hatch to happiness, which comes back, comes back at the end. But it's this very intimate, again, intimate, I'm using that word a lot, but it's a very intimate encounter and intimate conversation. And they talk about how they wish they were with each other and they telepathically hook up. And I thought it was tastefully done. Like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, it cuts away and, and cuts to the next day pretty quickly. Um, and yeah, I just, I, uh, they hook up, they take it to the next level. So the next day comes, at least I think it's the next day. Um, the dialogue kind of implies that it's been a few weeks or I don't know. It, it It's kind of up in the air because like in, in the bed scene, he mentions that he has to be at work in three hours and like, I don't know, it's pitch black and then he wakes up and it's, it's full, fully bright and everything outside. So I, I don't know. But anyway, that's, it's a meaningless observation. So <laughs> he's happy, but she breaks it off with him saying that it's dangerous for her. She can't like, it's gone too far and everything. And as a tactic for her to manipulate him, it's needed so that when she comes back, he'll be completely under her control. Um, but what I, I, I like this because of what it reveals about Phil. Like he mentions that it was special. She, she said so. And then when she breaks it off and, and hangs up for, hangs up on him, for lack of a better word, uh, he yells her name like very forcefully. And it's, it hints at his like 
instability and anger issues and stuff that kind of go, um, that kind of crescendo a little bit here in a little bit that I'll get to in a little bit. Um, so following that, we have a montage of loneliness for Phil. Uh, the music is kind of a darker riff on the piano melody that played earlier. I think I, I, I know nothing of music, so it, it could be completely different, but it's kind of a darker tone and everything. And I, I liked it. So we get a scene where he's watching TV and he kind of pounds his hand on the remote and tries to call her with this contrived conversation starter about a movie trailer for some movie called Dead Stick 2. And when he gets no response, he flips out. And it's totally like toxic masculinity, nice guy kind of thing. It's all very good and solid in terms of the commentary that it's providing. It's more subtle than last season, and it's very organic to the story. And that's something that I really appreciated about it. And I love how it just escalates like it is it is a very well written scene because he isn't he feels entitled to a response he says i'm just trying to be friendly you don't have to be such a bitch and he says that like just the entitlement of that because i mean she broke up with him he she he doesn't uh it's indicative of his transactional view of relationships like he feel like she he's not respecting her wishes because her wishes are in contrast to his desires. And he is expecting a response because he needs a response, because he wants a response. It's not because she should, like, it's it's not something dire. Like, he, this is such a contrived conversation starter that it is just solely to get her to talk to him, and that is solely to benefit his mental state, his personal connection that he feels for. Um, and it's disrespectful of her wishes. And so after he calls her a bitch, he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I just miss you. And like, that's, it's such a nice guy staple. Um, uh, nice guy TM trademark. Um, and so, yeah, his inability to let go is just borders on disturbing and it turns, it starts to turn into obsession. Um, he starts searching for her online and that in and of itself is creepy. Like he's looking up, uh, the distance between Ashford and, uh, Diamond Falls, I think. Yeah. And then he starts searching for her online, like searching for her address online and that is so creepy. And it also um, adds a little bit of credence to my theory that he, I mean, there are tons of Annie Mitchells uh, that he can find and everything. So maybe, you know, maybe he's mementoing her and any Annie Mitchell will do. Um, but again, I'll talk about that later. Um, and then he get like, he hears someone say hello and it's his landlord at the door, which, okay. Um, nitpick, like, she just says hello, like knock on the door at least like it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. But I mean, it's, it's so that he mistakes her for, for Annie and that shows the frailty that he's in the frail mental state. Um, and it's just showing that he's really on the brink of cracking. And when he goes to the door, like he doesn't care that he's late on his rent. Like he's just like, he shuts the door in her face. Um, and it's just like, I'll, I'll get back with you later. Um, but it, it doesn't even register with him as something that, uh, is of any importance. And that's his, you know, place that he lives. <laughs> it's pretty important. Uh, so that just communicates that he's really on the brink of cracking. And like, again, Jimmy Simpson's, uh, physical performance here is just fantastic. Um, and he whispers, 
to the ether, he whispers, I just need to know this was real, that you're real. Please say something to me and I'll leave you alone forever, please. And it's that desperation that makes him like, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy or an interesting, uh, counter to the charming meat cute that they had early in the episode because he is now like very organically shifted into this disturbing, desperate person who's desperate for regaining the connection that he had with, with this woman, but also desperate because he views it as transactional. He views it as his needs rather than their needs. And it's something that is kind of implied by the uh, closing narration also. So I'll get to that later. So we get um, an, another not specific time jump because it's later revealed it's been a few weeks, but uh, Phil's on another date and it's the barista um, played by Emily Chang, the co-writer. And he's totally blowing it. He asks her, he says like, so you have two cats? And she's like, no, I, I don't. I'm allergic. And then he, like, again, this is him reverting back to how he was before and how he's so self-centered and everything because he doubles down on it and he won't admit that he's wrong. And like, that is such a, that's such a specific character flaw for someone who is very self self involved. And he's also distant from the conversation. Like she's doing all of the conversational heavy lifting. Um, and he's just not responding <laughs> like at all. Um, and I also, just as an aside, I like that it's the same restaurant. Um, just, it's like, okay, he has a go-to first date restaurant. Like my friends have given me crap in the past because, um, like when I was doing the online dating thing, I would meet, uh, like the first date would always be at Panera. Um, but, uh, Panera bread, it's pretty good. Anyway. So at this moment in the date, Annie comes back into his mind and she says that she needs him. And they're like, their conversation is immediately just super sappy and romantic. It is like the most, um, uh, saccharine i think is the word <laughs> um uh like sweet sappy conversation and it's just it is the most like high school like oh my god i love you forever everything is pointless without you kind of conversation and so they immediately agree like they're going to meet in pilson bay they're going to meet in the middle um and then we get a happy montage scored by this song that i, I was i was charmed by it it was it was a good song to score it to but it's the shoals their song all follow. And yeah, so like we see him like picking out an outfit and getting a haircut and everything. And then he, they're on the train and they're talking telepathically. Um, and I thought this was really kind of sweet in the grand scheme of things because she mentions like, Oh, there's a free table. Um, like on her train. And he's like, Oh, me too. And then like he says, like you said, uh, you sit facing, whatever direction. And I thought that was really sweet. Cause like they, they are agreeing which side they're going to sit on as if they're like within the same, uh, environment. And I thought that was really sweet. Um, and Phil is just completely enveloped in the telepathy and the conversation with Annie, uh, to the point that a woman asks if the seat across is taken. He just brushes her aside, doesn't even pay attention to her at all. Um, and so this conversation that takes place between Phil and Annie, uh, telepathically, they're laying that lovey-dovey conversation on really, really thick. And honestly, it works. I, I bought it. Like they're, they're sharing music. They're having like cute little back, back and forth and everything. Um, 
it's just really, really sweet. And I really bought into it. And then Phil says he's been searching for her his whole life. And then she immediately interrupts him with a frantic, uh, a frantic, uh, kind of tone saying that there's a man watching her and making her feel uncomfortable. And at this moment, the episode shifts into a thriller and I really, really dug it for that. I really enjoyed this shift. Like he, when she says that the man, like, like she says like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to kind of move over and, and try to like, try to get away from him. And when she says that the, that the man is sitting right next to her, it's honestly chilling. And I really felt like this was just really good writing, like spectacular, uh, performance by Gillian Jacobs. Like we don't see anything going on on her end but we feel it like in her performance and her vocal performance we can feel the unease of her saying that there's a man sitting right next to her and it's a whisper but it's it's so evocative of just the danger that she's pretending to be in at least but it's so evocative of that in that moment because you just mentally construct what she's going through. Like she is in a train in an enclosed space with a man that has invaded her personal space by sitting directly next to her. And she is calling out to someone who is hundreds of miles away mentally, like telepathically and just the image of her sitting with a man sitting right beside her and being very creepy, uh, just is chilling to me because she's speaking telepathically like she's voicing her um unease about it but it's all telepathically so i don't know there's just something really chilling about that and i really appreciated it um so gillian jacobs is amazing in this scene but also kudos to jimmy simpson too for his performance here because he really sells the fear and the danger like he starts to like he starts he reacts almost a little playfully at first before he realizes like, Oh, this is a serious situation. Like he says like, well, tell them that you're mine. Um, and then he immediately like just real recognizes like, okay, well he's trying to be reassuring. He's like, okay, I'm here. I'm, I'm here with you. Don't worry. We'll, you'll be safe and everything. And she's like, well, you're not with me. You're just in my head. Um, and then we get the kind of the action set piece, <laughs> the voiceover action set piece where Annie is running from the man and she gets away. But let's know, let's Phil know the landmarks. Like, I'm by the big horse and there's a holiday market. Should I run in? And she gets away and it, it kind of, it eases the tension and everything. And almost immediately he, she screams because he comes back and the connection breaks entirely. And the scream that she does is super effective and super convincing. Like it is, it is chilling. It is, it's scary. Um, and it just really sells that. And this moment of the episode is where the last act really, like it really hinges on us, like on selling us on this moment, on the danger, because it is such a significant shift from the cute romantic comedy kind of meet cute tele telepathic kind of, uh, romantic comedy that we need to believe that this situation is happening, which is really kind of remarkable because the situation is not happening. (laughs) It's, it is something that she is contriving so that he is so that she can set him up, um, later in the episode. So that kind of act ends with him saying to her, uh, telepathically saying that he's coming for her and she's, he's going to save her. So we come back from the commercial break, um, or the commercial break, at least for, uh, people on CBS All Access that don't have the commercial free, um, subscription. 
And the episode has shifted. Uh, like I said, it's shifted into this energetic attempt to save Annie. And it takes Phil several hours to get to the stop Annie disappeared from. So there's this frantic nature um, in this hopeless nature that, okay, it's been, as he said in, in the train, it's been uh, it's four hours before they get to that stop. And four hours is a ridiculously long time when there's a missing person um uh, a missing person plot afoot. Um, so I feel like that frantic nature and the camera work of, of him running through, um, the, the kind of town square area, I guess would be the word for it in the train station, uh, the train platform, uh, is really well done. Like it's, it's pretty, it's pretty solid. It's solid. I'll say that. And it's just, it really sells that frantic search for her for her so he finds the big horse that she referenced and then immediately like right next to it is the the holiday market that she mentioned and he runs into it and i thought it was interesting imagery that he's carrying the flowers um like he doesn't let go of the flowers and i just thought that that was really interesting um i don't know i like i can't say for certain like what that implies or what that means but um or what the intention was but i just liked it as a piece of imagery um for his um, search for Annie. And so, uh, so he, like he throw, like he pushes his phone in the face of this, these people in this truck at the market. Um, but they drive away. They're completely ignoring him. Um, when he's like yelling, like, have you seen this woman? Have you seen this woman? And then comes what I thought was a really, really cool scene. He steps on the glasses on the ground and they shatter. And, I love this Easter egg. Obviously it's a reference to time enough at last, but like I have in my notes, this is how you do an Easter egg. Um, like it's an overt Easter egg. It's very much pointed. It's like, okay, this is us doing time enough at last, which is kind of weird because they referenced time enough at last very heavily in blurry man. Um, so I, it's kind of weird that they're going back to that. But then again, this episode has had recycled Easter eggs in it as well. But yeah, but I love this because it's obviously a reference to time enough at last, but it's so great because it's a completely different context. Like I just, I love it so much. Like two characters in the twilight zone have now broken glasses by accident at a pivotal and horrifying moment in their story. And I just, I love it for that. I really love that connective tissue there. Um, and like he, that's when he drops the flowers and he picks up the glasses. And I love, like, it even goes a step further where he collapses to the ground crying. And we see like a shot through the perspective, like from the ground of him, like kneeling down. It's, it's kind of, I don't know. It's been a while since I've seen time enough at last, but it feels like it's, it's mimicking, um, Burgess Meredith's breakdown at the end of time enough at last, uh, to an extent. And I just, I love it for that. I really love it for that. Um, so yeah, so he's, he's crying and everything. And at that moment, that's when Annie comes back into his mind and she gives him some like faint clues about where she is. She says she's in the woods and she hears an owl and we're kind of rushing toward the end of the episode. And at this point, I really think this is a very well paced episode. I really love it. Um, so he is following the sound of the owls essentially. Um, and I love him wandering and running through the wilderness and everything, like the sound of the owls and the wildlife have like a kind of chilling tone to them. Like it's very um, chilling and, and uh, makes makes you a little uneasy. Like it really helps sell the suspense uh, and everything. So Phil reaches a house and it's the only house around. So it has to be the house that she's at. 
And as he's standing on the porch, um, the TV inside, you can hear the newscaster saying the suspect is a man in his 40s. And I feel like this kind of adds credence to my theory that he's delusional and quote unquote mementoing everything. But it could also be nothing. It could also be a reference to a later episode this season. But I just thought that that was interesting that maybe there's a version of this or a read of this that could imply that he has broken some laws <laughs> like he has uh he's delusional in his pursuit of Annie but in the process like he's done things that we haven't seen but i don't know that that is a very very far stretch um yeah but oh also but then again also now that i think about it um <laughs> it could also be just implying that okay maybe Annie isn't the only person that this man has taken um maybe the suspect is a man in his 40s maybe that is referring to the man that's on the loose and abducting women from uh from markets and everything um so it could go either way i'm pretty sure that that was the implication that that was the intention was that it's you know implying that there's a man uh taking women so, at this moment, when he knocks on the door, this episode, I just want to point out, it's an amazing riff on the kind of white knight phenomenon in men. Like, this this weird phenomenon where, like, okay, well, any, like, and I see it a lot in, like, online arguments and stuff. It's like, oh, okay, someone's arguing with a woman. We have to defend her. It's like, it's the most ridiculous thing ever. But... I feel like this is an amazing riff on that because at this moment, Phil has no idea what to do now that he's there and when the man answer, answers the door. And I love the hesitation in his confrontation because at this point, that communicates he has no idea what he's going to do. Like He's like, oh, I'm going to play the hero. I'm going to be the white knight to this to this woman. And it's like, wait, I'm in over my head. Like, What am I even doing? Like, What do I say to this man? And he's, he speaks frantically. He's delirious. He mentioned, he's like, hey, are there any women around? Have you seen, have you seen women and everything? Um, and he's just very, uh, confused and everything. So that's when he telepathically asks Annie if the man who took her has a beard. And she says, yes, he had a beard and a plaid shirt, which is what he's wearing, of course. And what I find interesting about this, again, to go back to my theory, is that she does not describe the man to him until he is standing in front of him. So if we subscribe to the theory that she is in his head and all of this really is a delusion to him, he is feed like his subconscious is telling him that the man who abducted the woman that he is in love with is the man that's sitting in front of him or standing in front of him. So I just, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of like that. I feel like that's another point in my theory that he's just delusional. So that is the breaking point. He's like, okay, yeah, you're going down. So he rushes him and the ensuing fight in the house is brutal. And like I have in my notes, you know, you know, it's about to go down when the choreography leads a character's head to be obscured by furniture. So like, I mean, it's common practice in, in film and TV, but like the second that the man like gets down on the floor and like it's obscure, his head is obscured by the coffee table. I was like, oh, okay, it's about to go down. This is, this is, this is where it's going to get kind of nasty. So, while they're scuffling and while uh while Phil is punching him uh we cut to 
another another angle from another room which shows in the corner a TV that has what appears to be some kind of uh, commercial that has a woman with something on her temple, um, like kind of a kind of a visor kind of thing, and I couldn't tell what the commercial said, what the dialogue said, but it some, said something about treat your brain or something about the brain, and I don't know. I kind of wonder if that is a reference of some kind to a past episode. I I don't think so. But I also kind of wonder if it is a reference to a future episode from this season, um, something that we'll have to check back with later. Um, kind of like the Mission to Mars billboard in Nightmare at 30,000 Feet last season. Also, as Phil is beating the hell out of the man's face, I did notice that the house set seems to be the same set uh, repurposed from Replay. Uh, Neil's house. Um, I think, yeah, so, I don't know. I, I'm probably not going to be making those observations <laughs> in the rest of the season. Cause it's not interesting at all. <laughs> um, so Phil is beating the man's face in and the sound effect of when Phil like smashes the dude's head into the floor, like that sound effect, that, that sound effect of the head hitting the floor is pretty hardcore. Like that's, that's, I mean, that was violent. That was, that was, that was unsettling to me. And so was the punching and everything and the kind of slow motion and the blood flinging up. Like this is a brutal fight and the guy is very clearly dead. And at that moment, Phil looks in the mirror and then he looks down at the man and it says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And at that moment, Annie comes back and asks if he's still there and uh, says that it got quiet. And that's when Phil grabs the candlestick and kind of does a double tap, like just like make sure that the guy's dead. And what I found interesting about this is that Annie said that it got quiet. And what I found interesting about that is that that implies that he wasn't thinking about Annie when she was murdering that man. And I feel like there's something to be said about that being indicative of his almost true nature. Like he is this, like he just brutally, just brutally murdered this man and on the surface, it's because he's protecting the woman that he loves. He's he's saving the woman that he loves. Yet, while he is murdering this man, he does not think about Annie. Because earlier in the episode, it's, it's you know, said, Annie says in the coffee shop that she can only hear him when she's, when he's uh, talking or thinking about her or thinking to her. So it's just really interesting that, that that line exists. I think that that really tells a lot about Phil as a character and everything. Also, after he like does the kill shot um, with the candlestick, the look of glee on Phil's face is so disturbing and so like unsettling. And like, we only get that for a brief moment because after that, we hear the voice of a young girl say, Daddy? And my God, my mind was blown. Like, this was such a cool moment. And Adam, like, like my mind was racing when that happened. Like, I was like, this, this is chaotic. Like, this is, this blew my mind. Um, I thought that he had the wrong house, but then I was like, well, you know, beard and a plaid shirt. So that's kind of weird. So I wasn't, I was a little slow on the uptake. Um, and then Annie comes into the room and, uh, you hear her voice and then he turns around and sees her and like, it comes full circle. Like the song can't take my eyes off of you starts playing 
And also, just as an aside, I found that funny because that that song was featured in an episode of Black Mirror last season, and it was just kind of interesting. Um, but it's just, oh God, like this moment, this, this big moment, um, it felt like the episode, maybe it was the song, but it felt like that moment felt like the show transformed a little bit into black mirror. It's a very bleak moment. Um, in just all, all out chaos reigns in this moment. Annie says she's never seen film before. Like the, the chaos of that, of her being, protecting her daughter, seeing him just drenched in her husband's blood and his confusion, his just overall like insane demeanor, his confusion over it saying that he like he was saving her life and she needed to be saved and everything. It is just a, no pun intended, a killer ending, like a killer climactic moment in this episode. I was eating it up so much. Like I thought this was really well done. And so the police come in, he's still screaming about how he was saving her and everything. And, and he's just delusional at that point. And he's delirious is the word I'm looking for. And she's, she keeps saying, I've never seen him before in my life. I don't know. He broke into my house and assaulted my husband and I've never seen him before. And like, it's just, it's at that moment, it could go either way. Like, okay, she could be telling the truth or this could be like what's revealed in a few minutes that it's all a setup and that she was doing this to get, to get, uh, Phil to dispose of her husband so that she could escape. Um, and so we get a shot of Phil in the police car and the patrol officers are saying like, Oh, do you want to take this psychopath downtown or whatever? And he's like, yeah, I'll do it all. I owe you or you owe me or whatever. Um, but in the car, I, I love that there wasn't, like dialogue for the cop or anything, but it was just, just focused on Jimmy Simpson's performance. And Phil is talking about how crazy he is. Like he's coming to the realization. He's thinking like, Oh my God, my shrink was right. Um, I'm a murderer and everything. And I mean, my God, I loved Jimmy Simpson's acting in this scene. He displays such an amazing range of emotions. Like he starts laughing at the absurdity and the, and he has this delirious laughter and he starts crying because, uh, because he realizes like, I just murdered a man in front of his daughter and like the cry, like the whimpering cry and the, um, the kind of realization of, of uh, the weight of what's going on finally hammering home to him is just so perfectly done. Like I was floored by this performance. Like I think this was just fan phenomenal. Like I really loved, um, that sequence. And then, then we get kind of the, the big reveal. Annie comes back into his mind and tells him that he was her escape hatch and it's revealed that, you know, she's been like playing him this whole time. And Phil calls her a monster and freaks out and everything. It's such a dark ending and it's such a dark episode. And I honestly love it for it. I, I really do. Um, I'm very curious what fans of the Twilight Zone are going to think of this when, when they see this. And I'm very curious to hear feedback about, about what you think about this episode, because this is a very, very, very dark episode. And I mean, I don't, there wasn't really like that darkness was not present in season one. Um, yeah, no, it wasn't like an argue, argument can be made that, uh, 
the president episode. I can't remember the title of that episode. Um, <laughs> uh, that has a dark ending. Of that has a very dark ending. Yeah, but this is this feels so much darker because it's so calculated. Um, oh man, the ending of that episode was really good last season. Um, I actually really appreciate that. Anyway, um, so so Annie says like her last line to Phil is all I ever did was tell you what you wanted to hear and you were willing to kill for it. I told you you had a purpose. Goodbye, Phil. And man, I love that. I love that. And what I love more about that or what, what really um, elevates that is that we get a shot of Gillian Jacobs on the, st- in the, st- on the stairs with her daughter kind of cradling her, uh, like holding her do- daughter. And as she's thinking that, like right after she says goodbye, Phil, she does like the, like look up to camera. Like she does like a Norman Bates psycho look to camera. Um, and I, I love it. I love that. That was, that was fantastic. Um, and then we get back outside, um, and we get the closing narration from Jordan Peele. What kind of compromise goes into connecting with another human being? Is it meeting in the middle or going all the way to the end of the line? Philip Hayes found connection, but only with the darkest part of his soul. A region of self that he'll inhabit for the rest of his life. Here, in the Twilight Zone. And, man, I love that. Like, it is succinct and it just it really demonstrates just the darkness of the episode and it also kind of plays with the the kind of themes there like connection like personal connections that people form and and like like jordan peele says um what kind of compromise goes into it do you meet in the middle or do you go all the way to the end of the line like that's that's just kind of thought provoking in a, in a pretty interesting way. So I really love that. And then, uh, before the end credits, we get in memory of Carolyn Serling, who Carol Serling, uh, was, uh, Rod Serling's widow. Uh, she passed away a few months ago, excuse me, a few months ago. And, uh, I thought that was, that was a nice tribute to her. Um, that little title card. And so that's the first episode of twilight zone season two. um, yeah, and now I just realized that it probably is going to be the first episode because the In Memory of Carolyn Serling is at the end of it. So awesome. Um, so yeah, that, that's it. I'm, I'm so excited for this season after this and I'm, I'm just so excited that I get to watch the next screener now. Um, now that I've recorded this. So before I go, I'm going to do a little bit of trivia, um, and notes and everything. Um, I only have a couple of things. So at this point, I have, watched two seasons of the original twilight zone and i did notice that there was not much in terms of easter eggs that i could detect um maybe there are easter eggs scattered throughout it that i just i just completely missed that is 100 percent uh possible but uh yeah but i mean you know i'm all for it like i think that that's good because the easter eggs did get kind of distracting um Something I didn't mention in my review is that there's an obvious comparison to be made to the movie Her from 2013, which happens to be Spike Jones's Her with Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett Johansson. That happens to be one of my favorite movies. Um, it is about a man who falls in love with his uh, operating system. And I think that that, I mean, that does a spectacular job of, of deconstructing human relationships and human connection in a way that, uh, that this episode of the Twilight Zone does as well. Um, so there is an obvious, obvious comparison to be made there. However, I do want to point out that this episode, um, 
is extraordinarily similar to a 2014, uh, 2014 movie, kind of an indie drama, um, sci-fi movie called in your eyes with Zoe Kazan. Um, it was written by Joss Whedon actually, and, uh, directed by someone I, I can't remember, but the plot summary is two seemingly unconnected souls, f- uh, from different corners of the United States make a telepathic bond that allows them to see, hear, and feel the other's experiences, creating a bond that apparently can't be broken. Um, I do recommend checking that out. I haven't seen it in several years, but I'm very curious because, I mean, it is, I mean, it is, I don't remember the specifics of, like, what happens in the movie, but, I mean, just on the surface, like, the the plot summary is very much similar to this. So I'm curious if that was an inspiration or if that was just uh, an example of uh, kind of parallel thinking. Um, yeah, I don't know. But uh, the final kind of note that I have is that obviously this is the first episode, so I can't tell if, like, I, I can't be sure of this, but it doesn't seem like they're doing that 10-15 thing this season. Like last season, they had a recurring Easter egg um, throughout every episode where the number 10-15 was in just about every episode, um, if not every single episode. And there was nothing, obviously they're not doing the 1015 thing this season. I think in the commentary track on the Blu-ray, they mentioned that they, they, that was going to be a one in one season thing or a contained to that season. And I think they mentioned that they were going to do something this season, but there was nothing, no numbers stood out to me or anything. And I'm not sure if there will be any running Easter egg throughout the season or not, but I will keep my eye out for it, uh, in the next few episodes and see if I can kind of detect anything. (laughs) And then when, uh, when I get to episode four and everyone's watched it, I will feel like an idiot when everyone points out like, Oh, this thing here is blatantly obvious as a recurring Easter egg. And, uh, I'll feel like an idiot for missing it. (laughs) So yeah, so that'll do it for this bonus episode of anthology. Like I said in my previous episode, one of my previous episodes, um, I'm going to be just focusing on the new twilight zone for I'm, I'm banking on it being taking, taking up most of July. And then after that late July or early August, that's when I'll start season three of the original twilight zone. So, uh, bear with me if you're not interested in, uh, this new twilight zone season, just bear with me and, uh, I'll get back to semi, um, consistency (laughs) to the original series. Um, but I'm hoping to do two episodes, uh, per week. I don't know how, I, I don't know if I will stick to, if I will be able to stick to that, but I'm very excited for the season to premiere on June 25th. I'm recording this June 16th, um, Tuesday, June 16th. So, uh, we have about a week and two days before the actual season proper premieres. And again, we're getting all 10 episodes. I can't wait. I'm so excited. I, I love talking about this show and this iteration of the show because, I'm on even ground with everyone listening. (laughs) And so I'm delighted by that every time. Um, So yeah, so let me know what you thought of Meet in the Middle. Next time on the podcast, I will be uh, talking about the Who of You, which is hopefully going to be the second episode of the season. Um, So I'm releasing this on Thursday, June 25th, and I should have my review of the Who of You. It should come out um, on two, the next Tuesday, which I can't remember what date that is. And I'm stalling. Uh, the, that should go up June 30th. 
Um, and then the third episode you might also like should go up on Thursday, July 2nd. Um, and then hopefully I will be able to stick to two episodes a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays throughout the rest of the season. So, um, it's out there. That's, that's my goal. I don't know if I'll be able to stick to it, but hopefully I will. Um, and above all else, hope you guys enjoy this. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this. And if you have feedback or if you have thoughts on the episode, please let me know. And I would love to uh, to chat with you about it. So you know where to find me. Um, yeah. And final thing, again, consider checking out patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, where I'm going to have uh, some Patreon exclusive content uh, throughout the season as well. So a minimum rate of $1 per month gets you access to an RSS feed that you just basically copy the link, put it in your favorite podcast app, and that gets you access to, uh, to, to just a bunch of recordings, like, like a day's worth of audio recordings over the last couple of years. Um, that spans Obsessive Viewer, Tower Junkies, and most recently Anthology. Just bonus uh, B-roll recordings. So check that out. Patreon.com slash Obsessive Viewer. I will see you guys next week for The Who of You and You Might Also Like. So thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you next time. And now, here's a short clip from our Patreon-exclusive RSS feed. To hear the full clip and more exclusive Patreon content, go to patreon.com slash obsessiveviewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy. Super excited that I discovered this. Um, it's a comedy web series. Um, it's pretty fun. The first three episodes, I, w- I watched obviously the first three episodes, so it's three out of seven. The first one was called Transplant with L and A in Transplant, uh, uh, capitalized. Um, it's a fun, like, takedown of kind of LA culture and kind of the stereotypes of, of like Los Angeles and the kind of self, self obsessed, uh, culture therein. Anthology is edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by obsessiveviewer.com. For a full archive of our episodes, go to anthologypod.com slash archive. You can also like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod and follow the show on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. If you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes to leave us a rating and a quick review on Apple Podcasts. This is the easiest way to support what we do, and all it costs is a little bit of your time. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can make a PayPal donation at anthologypod.com slash donate or support us on Patreon for recurring donations and access to commentary tracks and B-roll audio recorded exclusively for patrons at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Official anthology merch, including shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more, can be found in the Obsessive Viewers Tee Public store. You can find a link to the store in the show notes of this episode and at anthologypod.com slash donate. Or you can simply search for Obsessive Viewer at tpublic.com. For information about the Obsessive Viewers annual live event showcasing short horror films from local filmmakers, check out shocktoberinirvington.com. And for an archive of all our events, as well as news about potential future events, head over to obsessiveviewer.com slash live. For more podcast content, you can find our flagship movie and TV review and discussion show, The Obsessive Viewer Podcast, at obsessiveviewer.com, and on Twitter at obsessiveviewer. 
You can also find Tower Junkies, a podcast where Matt and co-host Tiny share their love of all things Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series, over at TowerJunkiesPod.com and at TowerJunkiesPod on Twitter. And finally, check out The Secular Perspective, Tiny's side project podcast, which tackles current events and life's big questions from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda at TheSecularPerspective.com. Bumper music for this podcast comes courtesy of As Good As It Gets, which can be found at facebook.com slash asgoodasitgetsband. You can also find As Good As It Gets music on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Kitty! Yeah.